all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you might have. That email address is remedy at, I just blanked out on the remedy at mpbonline.org. It's funny how your brain does that from time to time. Uh, I chalk it, I always chalk it up to a lack of adequate caffeine levels in my system. So I don't know about you, but, uh, or, or lack of sleep or a combination thereof. But anyway, um, I hope everybody's having a great morning. I love this time of year when it's crisp outside when you wake up and warms up throughout the day. And certainly it's a respite from the heat that we've had during the summer. Just wish we could get some rain along with it. Uh, as many places in the state are still, um, still, Dealing with uh, the decreases in rainfall that we've had all summer, but still have a, I tell you what, we're not going to have a whole lot of ponds left in my neck of the woods. Uh, they're they're getting pretty low. I'm just uh, always driving by looking to see if there's any fish on the side that have sort of dried up, but uh, hopefully we'll get that pretty soon. Let's go to Jim from Jackson. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Would you please explain the phenomena of a sneeze? I very often will have not just a single sneeze, but a double sneeze. And the two or three seconds after the sneeze, it's an exhilarating feeling. Would you describe what's going on? Yeah, so most people think that that the whole mechanism around sneezing is to clear the upper airways, not the necessarily the lower airways, but the upper airways. So if you think about it, our... Um, how you take in and exhale air is a complex process and in in order to get the the right conditions for the air when it hits your lungs which would be high humidity levels at close to body temperature we're designed to do that in a lot of different ways so if you breathe in through your nose there's all kinds of what we call nasal turbinates. And if you think about that, it sounds like turbulent air, right? So what it's doing is it's slowing down that air and allowing it to move around with a lot of tissue that's in contact with it 
that produces a lot of mucus and increases the moisture level of that air and also helps to warm it up because it get, uh, before it goes to our lungs. And there's many reasons for that. It uh, actually increases the amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide transfer we can make across those alveoli once it gets to the lungs. It also is better for those tissues because you can have cold or heat injury to those tissues if they're not optimized before they get there. And because these tissues have all of these um, little uh, receptors on them, um, there's lots of things that can trigger some irritation. So, for instance, if you go out and like I just did driving over to MPB Studios and I've got my air conditioner on and somebody was mowing right along the, the road there and all this dust, right, like went, I went straight through, the, uh, through it with my car and these uh, clippings and all the things that are aerosolized. When those reach your nose, your nose can be triggered to get rid of that. In other words, your nasal passages are saying, I need to expel all these things in the most forceful way possible. And what a sneeze does is it accentuates the air over those surfaces in excess of 100 miles per hour. So we're pretty good at doing that for a very short period of time. So you're basically just blowing off uh, or trying to blow off all those things that are sort of stuck to those membranes to sort of clear it out so that they can do their job. Um, and if you have allergic responses to something, if you're hypersensitive in a way that your immune system is like, yeah, this is foreign and I really don't like it, then it can be uh, sort of that one after another type sneezing. Now, as far as the sensation you get, I, I would venture, you know, we're probably, I don't know of any research to look at this, to this, wow, that really was refreshing after I sneezed, but that makes sense because, again, you're just clearing those airways. Now, I know a lot of people are like, you know, if they have the urge to sneeze, they'll turn their face toward the sun and look up at a light or look up or down, and there's not really much research to support those as, as a trigger to help you sneeze. And uh, if you're like me, my sneeze is I, I'm probably forcing air out at 200 miles per hour because everybody clears the room when I when I start to sneeze because it's so loud. But that's sort of the mechanism. You're basically clearing those upper airways of whatever stuff is stuck to those mucous membranes to get it cleared off so that it can do its job of, uh, you know, sort of breathing in and out. So I have, does that sort of explain things there, Jim? Very well. Thank you so much, Doctor. All right, and happy sneezing to you. Uh, I know I'm dealing with that a lot these days with a lot of the uh, allergic rhinitis that I have. Jeremy in cold water. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Doctor. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, my question, I uh, in the winter months when the air gets you know drier and colder, uh, I tend to use a humidifier at night because my throat gets kind of dry and sore. Um, and I, I started doing this last year, and my daughter noticed that uh, I was wheezing, you know, during the day. Like when I would exhale, there was a, a slight wheeze to it. And it only seems to happen when I'm using my humidifier every night. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, during summer months, not using humidifier, it's not, I, I don't have that wheezing noise. And I'm just asking, you know, am I doing anything that's damaging myself or could potentially cause, you know, respiratory problems by using that humidifier? Uh, and if so, is there some alternative that you can think of for that dry, you know, dry throat and nasal Sure. Passage? 
Yeah, humidifiers are good if you're having those symptoms. Uh, one of the things you have to watch out for, though, there are some people that are hypersensitive to different things that can sort of grow in that milieu of the humidifier. So, you know, it usually has a reservoir that you fill up with water. Um, you have two types. You have a cool mist humidifier, and then you can have one that's warmer. And if you don't wash out that reservoir completely and use distilled water, a lot of people can be hypersensitive to things that like to grow and hang out in that moist environment, like molds and all kinds of things like that. We have more of a problem with it anyway in the South because it's everywhere floating around. Not as much in the winter months, but um, it can it can be there 24, 24 uh, 7, uh, 365 days a year, though, this, this far south. But my first thing I would try to do is, if you haven't, is to clean out that reservoir completely and uh, try to get it as clean as possible and maybe use some distilled water instead of tap water because there is a little bit of a chance that you might get some things with the tap water. Um, but other than that, that's the biggest thing. It may also be something you're getting into contact with and you're just associating it with the humidifier or the timing of it that's in the bedroom itself. Um, so if there's other things like sometimes you can have hypersensitivity to uh, – to, um, um, all kinds of different critters that live on our skin that can be in the in the bed sheets. That sounds terrible. I'm not talking about bed bugs. This is not Paris right now, but there are a lot of other things that sort of hang out there, and you can be hypersensitive to. So washing those regularly with lots of hot water. You know, I usually put mine on the bedding setting when I wash those sheets. Uh, that can help prevent that. Sometimes people use dust covers to help uh, dust mites. I was blanking on the name again. See, my caffeine levels are just low today. Um, but sometimes you can, you know, do that. Other people have gone to other extremes and maybe taken out the carpet or rugs in their bedroom and just having hardwood floors because there's less of a chance that you can get stuff that sort of settles down into that. But I, that's okay. the first step. I would just look at that humidifier reservoir and the equipment, you know, everything that's going to come into contact with that high moisture content, including the exhaust of it into the room and just clean that out frequently um, and see if that doesn't work. And if not, you might need to have formal testing. Sometimes what we hear is a wheeze isn't normally a, a wheeze. There is a way to, to do that with pulmonary function tests where you blow into this tube and it measures the airflow velocity uh, both in the first second and in in your complete exhalation cycle. And uh, that's usually a test that can be done uh, by a pulmonologist or an allergist. Um, but it's a pretty easy test to get scheduled um, if it if it persists after you do that. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that helps me tremendously. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. And thank you for calling. We're going to go to Francis in Mobile, Alabama. Good morning, Francis. Well, good morning. Thanks for calling. What's your question? Where do this I one? start? Yeah. Oh, you can <laughs> start at the beginning. That's the, the perfect place to start, as Julie Andrews would say. My question is about hiatal hernias. Okay. I'm 70 years old. I've heard people say, people who are in and around the healthcare industry, that, oh, by the time you're 70, everybody's got a hiatal hernia. And I'm like, okay. But I had a uh, CT scan the other day of my lungs for a, a different reason. And it showed, let's see, I'll read you the report. Large hiatal hernia with nearly the entire stomach herniated into the chest. Mm. And that really gave me the creeps. I was at my 
family physician um, office the other day for one of those Medicare wellness checkups. Right. And he said, well, you know, if it if it starts to give you problems, you know, then I can always refer you to somebody, a surgeon perhaps. And anyway, I went home and I kept pondering those words uh, about it, uh, the entire stomach herniated into the chest. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, guess I'm looking for some clarity on, on sure. all of this. Let me ask a couple of questions. So are you having, do you have a lot of reflux-related symptoms like burning after eating or if you're lying down in your in your stomach area? Lying down. Lying and down. I've taken, mm-hmm. um, I've taken some omeprazole, I think it's um, maybe 40 milligrams, right. once a day for, gosh, 12, 15 years, I'm not sure which. Um and but if I don't take it every day, I certainly uh, am regretting it by the evening. And at night, I do sleep on two pillows because of to avoid any kind of um, reflux feeling that I sometimes get in the middle of the night. And I will confess this, if you have a second. Sure. Um, I had a I had a brother who developed Barrett's esophagus, mm-hmm. and he kind of ignored it, and it eventually developed into esophageal cancer, which eventually, he died from it. Um, And so there is this family history of that, plus just, as you can see, all in all, I'm kind of creeped out. Sure. Well, let me let me let me speak to that a little bit. So uh, you're right. A hiatal hernia is something that's fairly common, and a lot of people don't know they have it until they have a test for something else. Like they'll have a CT scan no, of their test I, or of their chest. So um, so that's not too uncommon. Now it sounds like yours is a little bit larger uh, than than most. Uh, if the almost the entire stomach is sort of slipped up into the the chest cavity. But it is amazing the amount of people who have that degree of hiatal hernia and don't have any problems with it. Now, with that family history and with your symptoms, it may not be such a bad idea to have a gastroenterologist take a look at you in clinic and see if you might need to have sort of surveillance in EGD. That's that upper scope that they stick down that lighted tube to look at the esophagus just to make sure that you don't have those changes that that you know, uh, like Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancerous um, condition. It's one that mm-hmm. they monitor, can monitor over time and actually do some things for. But it it will change a little bit in how your stomach digests. You know how things move through there, and you could have stuff sort of come back the mm-hmm. other direction, back up a little bit more. As far as a surgery or, or anything else to pursue on it. Honestly, with the degree of symptoms you're having right now, I probably would not. Um, that's a, you know, it's not necessarily the worst surgery in the world, but any surgery can have risk associated yeah. with it. Yeah. So if a patient, you know, if I notice that on one of my patients, I'll say, you know, look, if you're not having any problems, 
I think we could just watch it. If you do develop some symptoms that are worsening in nature, in other words, for you, if you're having reflux symptoms or burning gastritis type symptoms that um, that are getting worse despite being on the omeprazole, then that might be a situation where, number one, we get the GI doctors involved, and then maybe we consider doing the surgery. But you really have to look at your overall surgical risk for that. But, um, yeah, you've just got a larger one, but... Uh, particularly, and if you think about it, this is not something that happens overnight. It's not that, uh, you know, one minute everything looks fine and then you have a big hole in your diaphragm and the, you know, it, it's a slow process over time and it's slow enough that the body can adapt to that. Um, so I, it doesn't surprise me that you have sort of minimal symptoms mm-hmm. with this. So you can take some deep breaths and be like, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, occasionally I have noticed that when I sit down to eat, I, feel full very quickly yep and that's because right and that's because that stomach is up in that chest cavity and it has different it's push it's being pushed on by the lungs and everything there so um but yeah that's i i would just go off of the symptoms since you do have a family history of somebody with barrett's certainly you wouldn't want to you know if you're smoking if you're drinking alcohol i'd probably cut those out or limit those as much as you can, cut oh out God. the smoking. I, have, I don't smoke, but do I have to cut out alcohol altogether? I, I would just minimize. Yeah, I think that's fine. I, I would just minimize that, but it, I would, since the okay. stomach is in a different location than it normally is and may have some different mm-hmm. um, pressures on it or, or lack of pressure on it in certain areas, it may not be such a bad idea just to have a gastroenterologist take a look. Okay, I'll do it. All right. Thank you, Francis. And uh, we do appreciate you listening and calling. This is Southern Remedy. Let's go to Barbara in Boonville. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling about these COVID shots. Uh-huh. And my, me and my husband are 78 and 79, and we're in the high-risk group. And uh, we took the uh, visor first. Well, the first four or five shots we took with the visor and now uh at walmart at the uh, drugstore they just have a moderna and uh i'm just uh, wondering you know if you take them the moderna after you've been taking the visor all this time yeah that that should be fine so you know the two companies that are making these are pfizer and then Moderna. So there's a little bit differences in those, but the biggest difference is this latest one. It's sort of like the flu vaccine, if you think about it. So the latest one is designed to be specific for this this most recent variant of COVID. And in a lot of ways, it's easier to predict the COVID than it is the flu. Um, so that's the way to think about it. But yeah, you should be fine. Very, and they did studies on this, like the patients that got Pfizer first. Uh, at first, they said, well, just stick with that um, since it's a little bit different. And the ones with Moderna, the same thing. But now we know mixing those can be okay. It's not any difference. There's not any increased risk with that. The immune response that you get is very good. Um, but yeah, I would, I would definitely go ahead and get the Moderna. You're probably not going to notice anything any different. Most of my patients that have gotten it haven't, you know, they haven't had any kind of side effect with it at all. Um, but yeah, that's, that's safe to get the Moderna after the Pfizer at this point. Okay. There's one more question. Uh Um, there's a friend of ours was talking about, uh, somebody that had died and her 
several had died. It had been taking these shots, and their blood was real thick. Is that any truth to that? So the, the early on, and this came out of some research done in Europe, they were looking at an increased risk of blood clots after taking these vaccines, and they didn't find, you know, the way this sort of works is when they first come out with it, they look at every little thing that pops up. So when this popped up, they said, okay, let's do some further analysis of this. And what they found was there wasn't any appreciable increase in blood clots in the group that got vaccines or the group that did not get vaccines. Now, contrary to that, if you got COVID, uh, if you caught COVID, your risk of, uh, in fact, that's one of the biggest complications is blood clots in patients that, that develop COVID. So if you think about it from that standpoint, it's protective against some of the the major complications of COVID, which were blood clots throughout the body. But no, it's it's um, certainly you're going to see with as many people who've gotten vaccines now for uh, COVID vaccines that some people do develop blood clots. But if you tease it out and look at actually the biggest numbers that we have now, we have a lot of information on these vaccines you don't see an, an increase in the number of blood clots. Somebody may have a blood clot. Certainly blood clots are common um, for a lot of different reasons. A patient may have atrial fibrillation. They may develop an acquired um, coagulopathy. Uh, they may have cancer. There's lots of other things that could happen. They could go on a long uh, plane ride, I almost said train, but nobody travels by train anymore, plane ride or uh, car ride and develop them. But, you know, as far as from the vaccine, there shouldn't be an increased risk there. Okay, then. Well, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to, I'm sorry, I don't have the caller's name from Greenwood. Willie. Willie, uh, good to talk to you. Yeah. What's your question this morning? I think take my call, doctor. I'm calling around to my uh I was diagnosed with you know type two diabetes about three years ago. Uh-huh. I know that did my my uh, I had numbers is in my leg, but they couldn't find anything wrong at the hospital, so I got an second opinion. They said my my uh, diabetes was under remission, four point two. They gave me all kind of tests. Everything was so good, everything. So I'm wondering about why my feet is heavy when I walk. I, I, I'll fall sometime on it. But uh, my insurance, everything, one uh, percent normally good. So they told me I'm I'm under remission. Hmm. So, yeah, and that's that's not I, I understand what you're saying. That's not typically a terminology we use for diabetes. It's usually controlled okay. um, because it's a little bit different than than the way we use that. But I got you like four point two on a one C is really good. It's actually a little low. Do they still have you on medication for the treatment of diabetes? No, they had told me to 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 discontinue metformin, five hundred milligrams day and night, and told me just to, you know continue taking my uh, blood pressure pill and this is continue to eat right. Got it. Yeah, and sometimes changing your lifestyle with what you eat or with your physical activity can be just as powerful in controlling the diabetes. So back to your question, though, about the neuropathy. Uh, So and when people say that, usually they'll mean either numbness, pain or loss of sensation. And you can have any one of those. Uh, certainly diabetes is a leading cause of that, but if your diabetes is under control, it might be other things. So there can be lots of other things that can cause that. Um, for instance, there is a decrease in the levels of vitamin B12 in your body that over time can be depleted, and um, that can cause 
uh, neuropathy in your feet, also in your hands. And that's an easy fix. Actually, it can get better over time with replacement of vitamin B12. It's a simple test to get to see what your levels are. Uh, That's just one example, but there are others, too, uh, that may not be necessarily caused by diabetes. So since you've done a, you know, y'all done a great job with getting your diabetes in order, if they haven't looked for other causes, I'd probably sort of press them in. Go ahead. Yes, uh, they did. Uh, they, they they put my own central for me in over fifty, and they told me to take the gummy, uh, the uh, you know the the, 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 the cherry gummy, and uh, they gave me everything you know the mirror and everything. They gave me all the tests to beat beat you up, everything but good. Okay, yeah, and if right. you're if you're still having problems, I'd give it another. Th- you know, a couple of months. If you're still having problems, though, you might want to see a neurologist if you haven't already about that. They're sort of the nerve specialist, and they may want to do some further tests to try to tease out what's going on. Okay, so do I continue to say something in remission, not uh, on the uh, reversal, uh, reversal, so I continue to just eat right, like I'm going, doing every morning, eating the right proper food, but I shouldn't go back eating too much of the normal food, like for non-diabetes. Yeah, if you did that, I think you would probably your your blood sugar levels would probably go back up. So, and they'll want to oh, even though that A one C is good right now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be that way. So they're probably going to want to check it at least once a year, maybe even like twice a year to make sure it's still low. Okay, well they want to check it up every every. She told me come come back in ninety days. That's perfect. That is a perfect time period. Uh-huh. All right. I thank you so much for, for taking my call. You have answered my concern. Uh, All right. Thank you for calling, Willie. We do appreciate you listening. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions. Let's go to Cynthia from Oxford. Good morning, Cynthia. Hi, Dr. Jimmy. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What's your I question? A, go ahead. Well, I've, I've got an issue. I have a, um, uh, had a chronic cough, a persistent cough for about a year. And I went in to see the doctor because I was also developing some shortness of breath. And I'm a non-smoker, have been, always been a non-smoker. And um, so he listened to my lungs and he sent me for a chest x-ray. And that came out, that came, the result on the chest x-ray said, change, lung change consistent with COPD. And so then the, um, my doctor sent me for a blood test because he said sometimes non-smokers can have like a genetic reason for mm-hmm. developing it. Right. But that came back, that was negative. Okay. And so now he wants to send me to an allergist, but I was reading online that um, uh, it seems like I should see a, pul- a pulmonary doctor. Yeah, I, and I think you're you're right about 90% of the time that's the person to go to. And if you think about this, so COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, is usually, as you said, it's usually you know associated with long-term cigarette smoke exposure, but you don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to have that. There's some other causes of that. The genetic test or the, the blood test that they did is called alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, deficiency. So that's that's one that's an easy one to sort of rule out. But yeah, most of the time after you've gone that route, the next step would be to see a pulmonologist. Now, an allergist is that's more for like asthma. They don't treat COPD as much. So I I would probably lean toward your suspicion that maybe a, a pulmonologist would be the best person to see, and they'll probably want to do some further testing. 
Um, COPD, you know, we've gotten really good with x-rays and CT scans of looking and seeing things. But COPD really needs to have lung function testing or LFTs. And uh, our pul- uh, sometimes they're called PFTs, too, so pulmonary function test. So um, that um, that's where you, like we described earlier, you sort of blow in a tube and they measure different airflows and those kinds of things. So it's going to take a little bit more um, information to definitively say you have COPD and they're w- going to want a really good you know, diagnosis of that before they decide if you need, you know, uh, medication for it or not. But I I would agree. I think the best people who have the most experience and training in that is, uh, are going to be the pulmonary doctors. Okay, good. So I should uh, just maybe let my doctor know I want a different referral. Yeah, is there a diplomatic I, way to do that? Yes, there is. So I would call him and say, you know, I, would it be okay, uh, questions are always better, if I saw a uh, pulmonary doctor, I've had several other friends and I've read some more about COPD and I would prefer that a pulmonary doctor do my evaluation rather than an allergist. And I think that would be fine. Okay, I really appreciate your help. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Alice in Macomb. Good morning, Alice. Oh, good morning. I almost forgot what I'm calling for. <laughs> I have written down on our call sc- uh, screener uh, screen vitamin oh, B12. Oh, oh. Is that it? Yeah, is that B12? It uh, like I'm taking three these, uh, B12 uh-huh. and D and D and uh, Mac. Magnesium. Okay. It, uh, and I listened at that guy about the numbness here and there and here and there. Do you think got something to do with it? You mean caused by what you're taking? About yeah, to be twelve. Yeah, usually it's it's usually if that's what's causing the numbness, it's you you don't have adequate number. You don't have enough B twelve in your system, and you can get that by eating most of the time. Now, some people lose the ability to be able to absorb it, and they have to take B twelve in other ways. And sometimes you have to take it like a shot once a month. You know, it used to be very common to have people do that. But the first step is to get those levels. Of vitamin B12 and see if they're low. Now, the other vitamins you mentioned, like B complex, that's a good idea to take that um, if you're not, you know, if you're not able to eat a healthy diet um, you know, or if it's challenging, it's not going to hurt you. All the B vitamins, you can't get too much of them. They're sort of washed out in the urine. So it's not like you can overdose on those. Vitamin D, as in dog, it uh, is a is a vitamin that is very integral to bone health and a couple of other things, but the biggest one is bone health and making sure our bones are thick and uh, that, that our density of our bones are good. And that one, you have to pay, sort of pay attention to how much you're taking. If the over-the-counter ones that you get... No, I'm talking about I'm talking about vitamin D. D. Oh, I got D3,000. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that that one probably was one that a doctor told you, hey, you'd probably need to take this because, for instance, that your vitamin D level was low, or maybe that you got osteoporosis. Oh, I do have that, yeah, but to be twelve, I done got kind of scared of that now. Do yeah. I have to be taking all this stuff? Well, I I would say if your vitamin B twelve level is low on your blood, then you might need to take the B twelve. But if it's not, you don't have to take it. You can just eat a healthy diet. 
Magnesium. Magnesium is one that is uh, important for muscle function and for it also goes hand in hand with your vitamin, uh, sorry, with your potassium levels in your body. Um, so, and it's also one that's given sometimes uh, as an adjunct for like constipation. But you know, if and again, it ought to be done, excuse for cutting you off, but it ought to be done, hope me by now. Because it's been over a year or so, and that guy was talking about the, whoever was talking about the honey thing and stuff. Right. Dr. Stewart, I get so heavy and stomach gets so big, and then at the top, I swell up up there, and these doctors, I, I just don't know. And I'm supposed to have uh, diverticulitis and all that stuff, but ain't nobody helping me and doing nothing. Right now, my stomach up towards the breast uh-huh. is so puffed out and I'm so heavy in my back hurting and stuff and hips. I'm just in I, I'm just in bad trouble. So I'm ready to cut all this loose because it seems like it ought to be happening uh, over a year or so. Yeah, I think you're right. If you haven't gotten a good response from it and you know there's not a good reason to take it, then you ought to quit. I mean, that's just extra stuff you have to keep up with. And I'm jumping up and down too about the uh, hanya thing. Well, it something, that's something, something wrong. Yeah, that's something that they need to. You I mean it doesn't necessarily mean you have it unless they've you know they've done a. They've a, been told me I had it okay. right. years ago, and ain't nobody doing nothing. I done had the cold not in the last year, right? And I had the EZ and all that. It just ain't right. Not to uh, do it. I just got to find me a good old, good old GI because I'm I, I'm suffering. That sounds like a good next move for you, Alice. Okay, I think I done got everything out because I'm so messed up. Even my brain getting. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alice, you listen. You take care, and uh, if stuff ain't working, cut it out. Okay, I thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Rebecca on the road. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. I was—I didn't have a great connection, but the gentleman who called earlier before before Alice, one before that one. Anyway, uh, he was talking about. Did he say his feet were numb? And then he was talking about his A1C was good. Anyway, it came. To, I volunteer at a free clinic, and it's. We recently had a lady come in. Gosh, she had lost some weight. And, and her A1C was great, and then I started digging through the chart. Uh, her glucose was, you know, 500, 600, and she basically, I, I guess she had hemolytic anemia, and so her stuff was false. So I was just going to say on that one man, he could ask, who, do I have a, just a plain old glucose reading? Does that make sense? Yeah, that is a good point. So that's not um – it doesn't come up often, but if you do have low, so if you have anemia, meaning you have low red blood cell counts, because of the way that A1C test works is you right. have to have adequate numbers of red blood cells. So that's important. Thanks for bringing that up, Rebecca. So uh, basically, if your your hemoglobin and hematocrit are normal, not an issue, but if they're low, then you're right. Then we may need to sort of you know jump back to what we used to do, which is getting a good fasting glucose on multiple levels. Maybe even what we do for pregnant women too, for the diagnosis of diabetes with having a, a uh, glucose tolerance test. So that is the right. two sort of backups for that group of people who are significantly anemic because they're going to have artificially low amounts of or, or low value of that A1C. 
that man just sounded thin on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how you can, you can tell that sometimes. So yeah, Rebecca, thanks for bringing that up. That's a good point. I probably should have brought up, but uh, that's something to think about. You do a great, you do a great job. I learned so much. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank thank you for calling Rebecca. Let's go to William from Biloxi. Good morning, William. Hey, uh, so, um, so I have, uh, my, um, feet and my hands are always very, very cold. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so I, I, I'm in my, I'm about 25, so, and I'm about 200 pounds. And, I mean, I, and I'm on a keto diet, so I, I, I don't think it's a, a sugar or diabetes issue. But, um, I, I was just, uh, I've always wondered why or if there's any issues or, or solutions. Yeah, there can be. So, um, one of the, you know, that there's a lot of things that go into why you would feel cold like that. Sometimes it's spasm of the blood vessels in your extremities that's abnormal. It's really more than what you normally need. You know, as we're exposed to different temperatures, our body sort of regulates that in different ways. And one of them is to constrict the blood vessels through the nervous system to the extremities and shunt that blood back internally. And your, your hands and feet will get cold like that. But there are other medical conditions that sometimes can do the same thing. Raynaud's is one. Usually there's like a, a, a change. Uh, you can actually have pain in your hands with that. It's, it can be white, and then it can be blue, and then red, sort of patriotic in yeah. some ways, you know, with a color change. Don't that is there isn't any color change. Got it. But it is, it is very, very cold. And, and cold intolerance, even if it's in one body part like that, a lot of times the endocrine system, particularly the thyroid, I don't know if they, anybody's checked your thyroid levels, but that may be something else to, to investigate. All right. But, you know, beyond, so, beyond that, um, probably not much else that can do that. Now, cryoprecipitates can sometimes do that, and there's different medical conditions that can put you at risk for that. But I don't know that you'd have enough symptoms really to, to dive into that just yet. Um, and, again, there's some blood tests for that. But the thyroid is one that's that can do a lot of things, and sometimes cold intolerance, particularly in your hands and feet, that can be that can be an issue. Now, if you were older, smoker, I might say you may need to get some tests looking at the the blood vasculature to those areas. But it, you know that's right. not that's probably not an issue. If you do smoke, nicotine can do that in a lot of ways. Or if you dip, it can actually make you more cold intolerant because it vasoconstricts those blood vessels. So I don't smoke, but I did. Um I did when I was little. I, I was put on Adderall. Um, it was actually Folkland, but it was ADD medicine. And uh, one of the symptoms was uh, uh, like a constriction of the blood vessels. It's actually said right, right. And um, so I don't take it anymore. I haven't taken it for a number of years. And um, so I was just wondering if there could be a lingering side effects of that. Yeah, usually it goes away after you stop the medication if you had that side effect. Right. So that's not one that would persist. But I, it may, I would, I would sort of press that with your physician and just say, hey, you know, this is sort of bothering me. It's a little bit of a nuisance. Can we do some further testing to try to tease that out? Right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to Shirley from Grenada. Good morning, Shirley. We've got about four minutes. Uh, I'm gonna make it short. I was recently at a gastroenterologist, 
Mm-hmm. And I was there because of a hernia. I was there because of the hernia. I thought it was a hernia because I had had one there before, and it looked like it had came back. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it, he said it was not a, a hernia. He gave me a, a C-scan, I guess you call it. But anyway, he said he didn't see a hernia, but he saw redness and irritation. And he also said that... uh I had calcium buildup. So what do you do when you have calcium buildup? That's my question. Was the calcium buildup in the blood vessels around where they had that scan, or was it somewhere else? Do you know? Around where they had the scan, I believe. Okay. And that was of your stomach, did you say? Well, yes, it was the high part of my stomach. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you can see calcium buildup. The most common location is within blood vessels themselves, and um, it doesn't necessarily, it's not a bad thing, but you may need to, you know, look at, you know, make sure that you're getting your cholesterol screened and looking at your total risk factors for, there's a risk calculation that we can do um, based on your blood pressure, age, and a lot of other factors to see what your total risk of a heart attack or stroke, and then... um, the other thing is, if you have a strong family history of uh, early heart attack or stroke, then they may want to do a CT calcium score, which they're looking not in that area, but at the heart level to see if you've got calcium buildup there. And if that calcium buildup is enough, then that would necessitate probably at least getting on a cholesterol medication. And over time, cholesterol medications are really good for calcium buildup within blood vessels. Now, you can get calcium buildup in lots of different places because it's a it's a major anion in the blood. And, for instance, if you get a, a deep bruise in an area, over time underneath the skin it may feel like it's really hard, and that's because of the potassium that sort of comes out of the blood solution and um, is in, it sort of settles out in the surrounding tissues. Or old injuries or scar tissue, that frequently can have calcium in it as well. Uh, you can sort of think of it in the same way as a scar. So if it's inside the blood vessel, that's something a little bit different and may need just a, a once-over about your overall risk of a heart attack or stroke to see if a cholesterol medication might be in store for you. But if it's just in the... I'm, I'm already on cholesterol medication. Oh, you're already on that? Yes, I yeah. am. Okay, got I'm it. I'm 70 years old, too. Yeah. And uh, when I'm taking multiple vitamins, do multiple vitamins, you think I need to be on that? That will contribute to uh, vitamin D? I, well, it, again, the vitamin D, there, that's an easy one because you can check vitamin D levels. Uh, even if you've been low before, after you've taken it for a while, they may can you know cut back on those. So it's... That's something that you might can come off of, and that's an easy test to just ask, hey, can you recheck my vitamin D level? If it's in the normal range, you just stop it. As far as other vitamins sort of causing things like that, if you're getting a healthy diet and your body's absorbing those, you really don't need anything extra. It's probably not going to hurt you to take that. You sort of have all your bases covered, but otherwise you shouldn't need that as an addition. Um, So that's one that you might could cut out. Well, that's all the time we have. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Shirley. That's about all the time we have for today. I, I, I hate to cut you off like that, but uh, we want to thank everybody for calling. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. We'll be right back.